Let's, uh, let's open with a, a word of prayer. Our Father, we are grateful again this afternoon to be here. We just enjoyed the, the beautiful singing of this hymn. And not just the beauty of the tune, but the words that touch our hearts. My Redeemer. There was a day in our lives when we couldn't say that. There was no personal relationship. We did not have a Redeemer. And here we are today. We've come to know him. Especially on this weekend when we know that it was, it was this weekend that he was crucified and buried. And then was raised again. We are, of all people, most blessed. And so as we open the word of God this afternoon, we ask for the, the blessing of heaven. We commit this hour into thy hand just now in his worthy name. Amen. Turn with me again to Philippians chapter 1. <clears throat> we were reading here yesterday, and we'll read here again tomorrow. Philippians chapter 1, <clears throat> and what we have taken up under consideration, we began by starting to, to look at this concept that the Apostle Paul was very concerned, extremely so, about the correct behavior of the Christians in Philippi. And I had kind of laughingly at lunch this afternoon, I was talking to a young man, I won't call him up by name, but I, I mentioned it and he said, I don't remember that. And what we just had captioned with, a, with some Fs as an alliteration, we, we captioned the idea that Paul was speaking to them, and this verse is put here by him for us to see the correct behavior of a fruitful fellowship of folks, friends and family that were about to unfold. And he's very concerned about the Christians at Philippi. And so as we started to read in verse 27, just that verse, we're going to read a little bit more today. But uh, let, let's just read it. Verse 27, and I'm going to go right down to chapter 2 and verse 1. So verse 27, chapter 1 of Philippians, Only let your conversation be, or only conduct yourselves. Let your conversation be as it becometh the gospel of Christ, that whether I come and see you or else be absent, I may hear of your affairs, that you stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. Verse 1, chapter 2, if therefore, or if there be therefore, any consolation in Christ or encouragement in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any bowels and mercies, or if any affection and compassion, that's the words, fulfill ye my joy, make my joy complete, he says, by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. So we won't get that far. But the, the concept of Paul writing to this church, these Christians, this, this group, this, this called out company of believers that he had reached with the delivering power and force of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He was very intimate with them. And so we tried to get across yesterday this, this, this idea that Paul says, I want to hear of you, he said. I can't be there all the time. Now I'm absent. And he said, I might even be absent from the body which is present with the Lord, which for me, he says, oh, it's far better. 
He said, but to stay here for you might be more needful. He said, I can't always be there. But in verse 27, when he says, I would like to hear something. I would like to know that you are standing firm. And we kind of brought that out in this, this idea that he wanted them to be unmovable. Unmovable in their stand. Firm standing. We talked about the original uh, meaning of, of that word. And he wanted them to be unmovable in their stand. To be able to be resisting against the wiles, the, the trickery by lying in wait of the devil. He's talking about purity. He's talking about loyalty. But I want to move quickly from that because that's what we spent time yesterday. This, this concept that our standing firm moves quickly. It flows. It's in the same sentence. Moves quickly to this. There must be unity. There must be unity. Standing firm in one spirit with one mind. You know, by the time you get to chapter 4, we mentioned this yesterday, he actually puts names on it. And it's sad that he had to do that. We've been hearing about some of that as well at the conference. And Paul's call, his, uh, in all of his writings, his call to every single fellowship of believers that he writes to on nine different occasions. Every time he wrote to those places, he called for them to be in unity. Why? Paul's saying that the local testimony to the name of the Lord Jesus must maintain unity. And, and real quickly, I want to try and move quickly just now. To, it, it, let me put it this way. It was the prayer of the Lord Jesus. Now think about this. Those that know the, uh, the content of, of John 17, it was, the, it was the prayer of the Lord Jesus when he said, Oh, Father, that they might be one as you and I are one. It was the prayer of the Lord Jesus. Further than that, it was the passion of the Lord Jesus. When he gave his new commandment to his disciples, he said this in John 13. He said, By this, now I know that you know that what he's about to say is that they love one another. But this is the concept that's in view. He said, by this will all men know. They'll hear, they'll see that you are my disciples, that you belong to me, the world at large. People will know that you belong to me. Wow. When they see that you love one another. We hope to see this when we get to some of the verses in chapter 2. But this is, this is, is how it's generated. His comments as he starts here, in one spirit and one mind. You know why we have, unfortunately, very unfortunately, you know why that oftentimes there is conflict in your fellowship or in mine? The body of believers that meets locally to the name of the Lord Jesus where you live and where you go. You know why sometimes there's often conflict? It's because there are at least two people who are concerned about their own interests. You, you never have conflict where you have two people who are only concerned about one person's interests. Wow. That goes to a family, too. That goes amongst a group of friends. Conflict is always the result of competing interests, always. Even when it doesn't look like it on the surface. It might be cloaked. It might be cloaked in spiritual garb and with verses. But it's always a result of competing interests. 
Paul's, Paul's basically saying here, listen, he says, stop looking out for yourself. He said, it doesn't matter. Let me, let me try and say this as gently as I can. He's, he's saying to the, the saints at Philippi, he says, it doesn't matter what you think, he says. It doesn't matter what you want. It doesn't matter what you prefer. He says, what matters to God is unity. And the question is, who is going to sacrifice? Who is going to humble themselves? But maybe you say, Well, wait a minute. I'm right. That's the problem. We have elevated being right over unity. Paul is not talking about sacrificing truth. He is dealing with the preferences that were going on amongst these believers. Paul Paul is going to convey, starting right here in verse 27, that it's absolutely essential for there to be unity amongst that koinonia, that fellowship, that partnership, that sharing of believers. There must be unity. And God will bless you, dear brother, dear sister. God will bless you if you have to make the sacrifice to bring about unity. You never have discord unless you have more than one person competing for more than one perspective. As soon as people defer to the other, there is unity. So he says here in verse 27, standing firm in one spirit, one mind. You know, in Ephesians 4, Paul mentions it again. He talks about the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. And maybe we'll mention that later or tomorrow. But it's very very simply this. It's It's a spirit or an attitude of unity in a godly congregation. I've, I've been, in, I, I've had the privilege over the past 20 years in working in two new works, deeply into two new works, and seeing two new testimonies established to the name of the Lord Jesus. And when they started, we were on the oversight. That's the scriptural pattern, 1 Peter chapter 5, and with the other workers. And as God brought along these men, we watched them one by one, the Spirit of God raised them up, and we backed away in our work of oversight. And I tell you, I, I mentioned this to someone just the other day, here, this weekend, I would, I would love to see that every single brother who is in full-time service for the Lord in gospel and in ministry to at least spend five or ten years on oversight where you go in in godly way, you nurture and you feed and you lead and you guide with the example of your life and you get on your knees and you weep and you pray and you care for tender lambs. It'll change you. Wow. Unity in the fellowship is absolutely... Why is this thing of disunity affecting Christians everywhere? Why? You know, you can hardly understand it. Sometimes it just pops up its ugly head. It's like that slimy little snake. We had a seed sowers event. We rented this building in a a campground. There was 150 of us there. And all of a sudden, we heard all the high-pitched squeals and screams of the teenagers and slithering through these, the benches of this old building we were using to, to, to speak in was a, this big black rat race, a harmless thing, black razor snake. And you should have seen everybody clear out. And I thought to myself, that's just like this. That is just like this, this concept that Paul is raising himself up against. There's this idea of disunity. You can hardly explain it. You don't know where it comes from. It's, it's, we work hard at trying to maintain it. And what Paul is getting at here, he says, he said, give up on your rights. Give up on your opinions, he says. Give up on your preferences. Give up on your wants and seek peace. It's God's desire. You know what? If we don't, Satan wins. 
It gets all the believers all taken up with all this disharmony and disunity. And before you know it, you have everybody in the fellowship running around so consumed with conversation and so taken up with trying to maintain a unity that's not even there. And our gospel, this is what it's getting at, our gospel testimony is stunted. And believers are changed. And unbelievers don't even want to come and hear the gospel because they see believers who can't even get along. I've seen it. In a fellowship of believers who gathers to and unto and into the name of the Lord Jesus, there is no room for my agenda. What stands prominent in importance, Paul says, is unity. So Paul's addressing their conduct. He's addressing their behavior. He not only says to stand firm. We talked about that word, stecco. It's a, it's a military term, standing at our post, from the feet shod, to the helmet placed on, to the breastplate of righteousness, to the raising of the shield of faith, that always preparedness, and to the sword of the spirit, and all the armament that the believer puts on. He is standing firm in his post. He's loyal. He's living a life of righteousness and holiness and purity. And there he is. But in his standing firm, he is standing firm, united with other believers in one spirit and one mind. And you don't have to dissect those words. They just, they just simply mean our immaterial parts, our spirit and our soul. It simply means this, this attitude must be one of unity and humility. It's unity with a purpose. Look what he says here. He says, I want to hear. I want to hear of your affairs, that you stand fast in one spirit with one mind, striving together. This is beautiful. Striving together, he says, for the faith of the gospel. Very interesting word that Paul chose here. Striving together is one word in the original. And what he was saying is this. It's not just striving together for unity's sake. He said, you know what? You want to see an exercise in futility. You try and maintain unity in a group of believers without an objective, and you're dead. No objective. What does he say? He says, striving together for the faith of the gospel. That word in the original is a word, I'll try and pronounce it for you, it's sunathalo. It's a word from which we get athletics or an athlete. And here's this, this idea of, a, of, a, of an athlete, and he's not alone. I, I never forget, I, I played basketball in high school up till I was 10th grade. And then one day in shop class, I lost my fingers. Chopped them right off in a machine. Recovered and I was done playing basketball. I tried to go back and I couldn't dribble. I could only dribble with one hand and everybody knew they could steal the ball on this side. So I said, forget it. It was a good way to get out of it. And, uh, but we had a boy in our team and he was so good. This guy could shoot from anywhere. Was back, date myself, was back before the three-point line. We didn't have a three-point line. And he could shoot farther beyond that. But you know what? The coach benched him. Because after seven or eight games, they couldn't win with him. Because he was a ball hog. You know the picture. He hogged the ball. He wasn't a team player. You see... What Paul is getting at here is this, this idea of, uh, 
of working together in teamwork, struggling against the, the opposition to win the victory. That's the word he chose. So he, he moves from a military term to stand firm, and he instantly goes to an athletic term as, a, as an athlete who works in teamwork with others. And, and, and this idea of being in fellowship with believers, we can never establish or maintain unity by just standing around, Paul says. A static situation amongst believers in a local fellowship will never maintain unity. It can't be done. The only way, Paul says, to keep an internal harmony, an internal oneness, is to be united in, in, a, common, in a common life that is engaged in a common struggle. Why is that true? Well, when everyone is focused on the common goal, when the common objective and the common victory, and there they are, they're looking at it, and there's a, a, a desperation about winning, not that we're out there to win something, but this, well, yeah, oh, we are, aren't we? We're out there to win souls for his honor. This, nobody involved in this is really too much, in, they're not really caring too much about these internal preferences. It becomes inconsequential. It doesn't matter. We've all seen this, haven't we? Sports teams, we've read about it. I, I, happen to, I happen to live just a few miles south of the city of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And if you come to our city, as you're leaving our house and you get onto the highway, 79, you head into the city, you'll see signs. You know what it says? City of Champions. You know, every, every city thinks they're a city of champions. Well, we happen to have three sports teams that hold titles that nobody else holds. We have a, a football team, and they hold six rings of the Super Bowl, and, and no one else does. And they pride themselves in that. We have a baseball team that holds pennants, uh, the pennant race and the World Series, but it hasn't been since the 70s. And there's reasons for that. And I'm saying this because I happen to know some of these men personally. Through the injury to our son, they have invited us and they've actually given us their venues, their stadiums to, for the man that built our son a, a beautiful smart home that would accommodate his needs. Uh, they actually gave us one of their stadiums to use for a concert that he put on, raised hundreds of thousands of dollars. So we got to know the Rooney family that owns the Pittsburgh Steelers. And we got to know Mario Lemieux very personally. He owns the, he owns the, uh, the, the Pittsburgh Penguins. And so we went down there. We were right on the ice with, with Sidney Crosby and, and uh, Chris Letang. And one of our sisters in our assembly is a big real estate dealer, and she sells them all their homes. And so we often see them. And my daughter lives on a street, and sometimes you walk into the home of one of our elders and lying on the couch taking a nap is Chris Letang, one of the world's greatest defensemen. And they'll, you, how you doing, Chris? Good to see you. Hey, get your rest. You need it for tonight's game or whatever. And it's, it begins to be this joke. But you know what they tell us? I was down there with my son. We wheeled him on there. They had all the shirts for him. Sidney Crosby came over, and he's signing his jersey and talking to us, hugging our son, taking his prosthetic legs and signing his name on it. And, you know, what we've seen is this. They have internal fighting. They have their internal feuds until the championship is in view. And I've listened to them. I was right there, ice side, and my son at that time had a new center with his brain injury. He was turned like this, and I turned his chair so he could watch, and there's this, these powerful men, and they skate. I loved hockey. I played hockey in high school, and I see these men, they hit that puck, and it's flying, and I don't know how fast, and I could never have done that, and my son played with us. We played with all the guys, and, and he looks, and you know what they're all saying? It's for the cup. It's for the cup. They, they have a goal in view. And we understand it from a world's perspective. 
that when there's sometimes these petty preferences between sports players, when it comes right down to the championship in view, and there's the goal, whether it's a Super Bowl ring or a Stanley Cup or a World Series title, these men, unbelievers, some of them, I've met some that are believers, they put aside those things and they strive together as athletes in a team for the goal. And when it comes right down to this, we understand that. What Paul is saying here is this. The only thing, let me, I'm going to say this, I'm going to hammer this home. If you're here today and you're a young teenager or, or, or middle-aged in your 20s or 30s, you're a young couple and you're just starting out, you're the ones I want to speak to. Because this is what Paul says. He says, how we get or how we are going to get to the objective is what's in view. How are we going to get the objective? Not who gets the credit. Catch that? So Paul is, he's reaching out to these believers. He says, I want you to know. He said, the only thing that should concern you is how are we going to reach the goal? How are we going to place our hands on, a, on Lord Stanley's cup, to use that horrible illustration? How are we going to reach that goal? It's not who gets the credit. And here we are in a fellowship of believers. It's not whether you like the person next to you. And it's not whether, listen, in the spiritual arena, when each of us sees the common goal and we move toward it, the internal stuff becomes, pardon the term, ridiculous. If in a local fellowship, a called out company, if we can get our focus on the fact that we are engaged in an incredible spiritual warfare and it doesn't matter about the petty stuff. That, that stuff, it sucks up our powers and energies and our time. And instead, we, we should be communicating to a world that's lost. We should be communicating to them the saving knowledge of our Lord Jesus. And we should be displaying in our life and in our character the wonderful effect that he has had on us in his saving grace. This should be the outreaching goal of every group of believers. Sadly, it's not. Sadly, we let the enemy work into our ranks with his lying, deceptive treachery of sowing discord among the brethren, which God hates. He hates it. The believers that we've been working with for the past 20 years. Now, I've been removed from it. We were in the hospital for 26 months, and we came back to living in Western PA to be near our son to take care of him. I've gone back and forth to those uh, two assemblies, mainly the one. In the time that we were there, there was well over 150 that came to know the Lord Jesus. Difficult background, a lot of problems, a lot of difficulty. And as we met with them and worked with them, my mind all the time would go back to how I was brought up and where I grew up, and if you don't know, I was, I was born and raised in the East Boston, Massachusetts. And we had a dear brother in our assembly. And he was a shepherd. And there were difficulties in my family, as there was in others. And that man would drive so far out of the way, and he would come to my home, he would pick me up. And we, he would take me out to... Dunkin' Donuts, not Tim Hortons. And we would sit and have these big cinnamon rolls and coffee. 
And he would reach over and he would hold my hand. I felt uncomfortable sometimes. And he would pray. And when I got old enough, I had my own car, my first pickup truck. Uncle Fred Hill would come to me and say, my door is open all the time. And oftentimes, sometimes once every two weeks, I would find myself at 26 Sheaf Street, Malden, Massachusetts. Uncle Fred would open the door. And within 45 seconds, we were down the stairs in his office on our knees. And he had his arm around me and he was praying. And when I left, he would hug me and he would kiss me on the neck. He was a father to me, like the father I had but did not ever have. Shepherds. What does this, the Isaiah the prophet say when he speaks about the shepherd? He said, he shall feed his flock like a shepherd. And he shall gather them with his arm. And he shall gently lead those that are with young. Brethren, I feel very bad to have to say this. The greatest need we have in God's assemblies are shepherds. With a loving, caring, devoted, Christ-like heart. Sold out for the good of the believers. That the Spirit of God has raised them to lead and to feed and to guide with the example of their life. You won't have these problems. I challenge you, if you're here today, I'll say to you as a fellow elder, no longer in those two assemblies where God has raised up men, but I would encourage you or challenge you. Starting today, if you pull out your smartphone and you punch it in, in the next 30 days, how many of the believers in your fellowship are you going to meet with, not to put out a fire, but to start one? Start one. I'm not saying that negatively. But I can tell you that that dear man that I just made reference to, you know what he did for me? He started a fire in my chest, spiritually speaking, that's never gone out. And even though we disagreed on some stupid things, it didn't matter. You know what he would turn to me? He would say, Dale, he says, that's my conviction. Don't let my conviction be yours. And then he would pour Christ in. I challenge you. You're in a position of leadership. You know, we did out west when we, all those folks that moved off of colonies and they came, we watched as God began to raise up men and we sat down with them. Every week we met for prayer, sometimes three, four hours with a list of paper with all the names of all the Christians and all their children and all those that may have, might have come. And you hit them this week and you hit them this week. And in a month's time, every one of those believers were visited for one purpose and that was to encourage them in the things of God. And to build them up in their most holy faith. And God blessed it. And now I walk away. I was just back there in August. And here are seven men. Three of them that have been pointed out. That's a biblical term. Three of them that have been know them. Recognized. We put forward and six or seven men put their hands on them. And in front of the whole congregation they prayed with them. And there were tears. We did it because a lot of them have exact same names. Three or four of them in the same place with the same name. So you had to point them out. And here they are. You know what they do every day? Starting at 6 in the morning, they meet at McDonald's and they open the place up. Coffee. That, that group of tables over there are for the Christians that gather over there. And those young men that we once were meeting there to encourage are now taking the other young men to encourage them. Listen, we are sunathalo. 
We are striving together as a teamwork in effort, struggling, striving for the faith of the gospel. Athletes together in a common goal. First, to preserve the word of God against hostility by knowing it. Secondly, to proclaim the word of God, often to the very same people that are in opposition to it. You know, military men have been known over the years to to set up straw men. You know the phrase. Their, Their men had no one to fight. And so they would set up straw men, they called it, to give them someone to fight against. I'll never forget it. We, I love fishing. I still do. I hardly get the opportunity. But uh, where I grew up, I was, we were 27 miles north of where the hall was. And uh, on the coast, we were right on the Route 1, the, the coast of Massachusetts. Not far from where I live was Rockport, Mass. Some probably have known where that is, famous place. We would go there at least once a week, sometimes twice a week growing up in the summer. And we'd go deep sea fishing. I could tell you stories for hours about being on that boat, the Miss Rockport, Captain Ted. But one thing I learned spiritually was this. Captain Ted had two mates, first and second mate, and they would help him. This boat would hold 70, maybe 75 people. It was a good size fishing, you know, deep sea fishing. You'd get there at 5.30 in the morning, get your ticket, get in line, and by around 10 minutes to 6, you'd turn your ticket in and you paid $6. It's now over 100 to be on the same boat. It was fabulous. Your $6 went in, and they, a man peeled off a dollar from each person. He put it in a big jar. He put the lid on it, and he put it up, and that was the, the big fish kitty. And that's, we, we loved it because whoever caught the biggest fish got the jar. And you'd go home with $50, $60, $70, and you'd stop. You'd get your ice cream, get your pizza, and you'd have a fishing trip, and you never paid for a thing. And I, I only won it once. We loved to go fishing on the Miss Rockport. And Captain Ted was not a believer, but Captain Ted knew something. He knew this. Families would come on board, groups of young people, and would all be sitting around these benches with our rods and would be out there 12 miles off the coast and the water's doing the slow roll and it's 85, 90, sunny, and it's hot on one side and nice and shaded on the other. And the fish weren't biting. And Captain Ted knew our lines were thick and they were down 150 or so feet. You had your big teardrop weight and you had your cut bait. And oftentimes there were small fish on the line, but you just couldn't feel them. You know what he would do? He knew my brother and I very well. And he'd, he'd look over at my brother Wes, he'd look at me, and he said, it's time, it's time. He'd walk, he'd walk by, and the rods, they had them out their armpits like this, you know, and they're holding the rod. And he'd walk by to the end of the rod, he'd go, do 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 He'd just tap back the rod, and the kid'd go, ooh, ooh, ooh. And he'd look over at his first mate, other side, the back of the boat, he'd do this, and he'd go, do 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 And all of a sudden, four or five people, ooh, 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 I think I had a bite. Well, he says, if you think you have a bite, reel in. Do you know every single time they reeled in, somebody had a fish? And... He told us after that oftentimes they started to crank up and the bait started to move. A fish would see it. Next thing you know, somebody pulls in a 10-pound cod or there's a haddock. And everybody's, st- you know what's happening before? Young ladies, young men with their families, they're all starting to fight. That's my sandwich. That's my Coke. What are you doing? And there's all this fighting. All of a sudden, they started to fish. No more fighting. You got the picture? You give me a fellowship of believers and you give them an, an objective Let me just say it this way. A group of believers who begins to see, they they start to see that within themselves, they're an end in themselves. They come on Sunday morning. They go to the Sunday school. They, oh, we have coffee and donuts. And then there's a Bible study or ministry and the gospel meeting and maybe a prayer meeting during the week. And they come and they go and they come and they go and they think that's the end. Oh, no. That is just the beginning. You and I, are in our local gatherings to learn from the Word of God, by the Spirit of God, about the Lord Jesus Christ, to become absolutely, unitedly interested in His interests. 
by becoming deeply intimate with who he is and then to be trained in his school to go and reach the world around us. Brethren and sisters, how are we doing with that? How are we doing with that? We're training, not just for reigning. We're training to go out and reach a world. It starts with a united group of people. We face a hostile world. We, we, we live in a world that absolutely rejects the Lord Jesus. I was having meetings recently. We go in a home, and there was two exchange students there. The one girl sat here, and I was working with Bert Snip up there in Ontario. And he turned to this one girl, and he said to her, he said, uh, Suni, I think her name was, he said, did you ever hear before this week about Jesus? And she looked at him with the sweetest smile, and she said, no, Mr. Snip, I've never heard the name. I about burst into tears. Intelligent young woman. She says, I never heard the name. Listen, you show me an army that faces death, and I'll show you an army that doesn't have any internal problems when they have an objective in view. It's impossible. It, it, can't, be, it can't happen. So, so Paul is, is bringing them this verse. You know, I want to I move on quickly because... This, this, this concept, this idea that we are struggling together, we're striving together for the faith of the gospel. It's, and Mr. Jarvis said it this morning, we're not doing so well, are we? And yet I know areas that are doing great. And we'll touch on it in the next session. I want to close and leave our brother plenty of time. But you can't go to read Luke's record in Acts. You can't read through those first four chapters and not come to this conclusion. The multitude of believers were of one heart and one mind. And what the next verse says, and great grace and great power was upon them all. They learned it. May God help us to, to realize this, that this, this, this foe we have is not just a foe from without. Oftentimes the foe we have is, is, is right inside. Right, right inside our fellowship. We tend to bicker. We tend to converse. And we tend to gently spar with each other. And the unity is broken. Paul said, listen, he said, I want to hear. I want to hear that you are standing firm. Oh, yes. But I want to know that you're standing firm in one spirit, in one mind, striving together like a team of athletes for the faith of the gospel. What a, what a, it just generates unity. Brethren and sisters, we need to know what unity is. I hope by the help of God tomorrow to breeze quickly through the first four verses because there are truths there as to why there should be unity and what it actually is and how it can be brought about and how it can be maintained. It really would take a week to go through, but we're going to try and put it in 30 minutes and try and punch home a few truths. If you here today, if you are, what's those terms, uh, millennial or under? If you could grasp the truths that the Spirit of God was leading Paul to teach here. Listen, I... Pardon those from Marysville. We had six one-hour sessions back in November on the believer's desire and this idea, this concept that when Paul picked up his pen to write, he was inspired. He says, all scripture is given by inspiration of God. And that word is found once. It simply means this, divinely breathed in. Theopanustas was the word. God breathed it. Paul might have penned it. God breathed it. What are we doing with what God has breathed. What are we doing with words from a man like Paul who writes to nine churches and he says, get about the business of God's interests. Make it our interest. 
but you can't do it if you're fighting within. Let's stop fighting. Start fishing.